0: and welcome back for another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to tackle what I think is one of the most beautiful and, well, beautiful and communicative uh, passages of Scripture for New Testament believers and for the church. The fourth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Well, before we turn to the text, Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Please join me. Heavenly Father, as we take these moments to stop, to ponder your word, to seek to hear your voice, your spirit speaking to our hearts. Lord, help us to hear what you have for us to hear within this fourth chapter of Ephesians as you spoke through Paul to that church at Ephesus about these profound truths of living out our faith and our relationship with you, Lord, help us to grasp hold of the realities that are there that speak to us where we are right now, that call us to greater obedience to you. Father, our desire is to mature in our faith in you, to grow in our knowledge of you, and to live lives obedient to you, that we may glorify you, your name, and your kingdom. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we delve into this fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, just a reminder, he's writing to a church that has both Jews and Gentile uh, converts in it. So it's, it's an uh, ethnically diverse congregation, if you will, and that was causing some problems. And so Paul has already laid the groundwork of how Christ united them both through the gospel, how all of them have come to be part of the true family of God through Christ. And now instead of arguing the the case of the gospel and who we are in Christ because of the gospel, he now shifts his attention a little bit to what it looks like for us as New Testament believers as the church to live out the reality of the gospel of Christ at work in our lives. And so in chapter four, we really switch into a very practical mode of discussion with Paul as he's explaining to the church some of these realities. It's not just, this is what you should believe, these are the doctrinal standpoints, but he has now shifted to, this is what this doctrine looks like lived out in your life. And I think that has very strong implications and applications for us today in our modern context. Our issues may not center around whether we're Jewish or Gentile. But I think it would be hard to ignore right now that in our world the issue of race or ethnic background or economic background or educational level. We have so many things, and our world plays on so many touch points in people's lives that divide us. And what Paul is reminding the church of, especially in the first half of chapter 4, is what unifies us and that that is our reality that we live in. And all the rest of that becomes noise. Now, am I saying that justice issues or racial issues or economic disparity issues are things we should ignore? No, I'm not saying that at all, and neither is Paul. But we need to focus within the body of Christ on the reality that we are made one in Christ. Now let's look at what Paul has to say. As he starts out in chapter 4, he begins with that powerful word, and it's a word that transitions the rest of the book of Ephesus. Therefore. Therefore what? Again, he's laid out his theological framework. He's laid out the doctrinal issues that make us united in Christ and the work of Christ and the gospel and the, the preeminence of the gospel message. And Now, he's shifting to application in our lives. What's this look like as we live it out as the church? Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, there's that reminder, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. I'm going to stop there. I'm amazed at how many people I come across in life that miss this basic fundamental point. If you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have a calling. You have been called by God, not just to him, but God has called you for a purpose and a work in this life. A calling isn't just something that happens to pastors or missionaries. It's something that happens to every believer. God saved you for a relationship with him, but he also has a purpose for your life. Let that encourage you, not discourage you. I still meet many believers in church life that think God's through with them. And if you'll excuse me of being a little blunt with it, the response I've given in the past to that is real simple. If you're sucking wind, God's not done with you. Search out for what he has for you to do. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what your context is. But I know God has a purpose and a plan, a calling for your life. He called you to himself but he also has a purpose, a work for you to be about doing. And it may be that the limit of that work is that you spend the time to intercede for others before the throne of God. I don't say that to discount prayer. In fact, just the opposite. It may be that you are in a situation where you don't see anything you can do but pray. Prayer is awesomely powerful. Don't sell it short. Spend the time in prayer if that's what God has called you to do. But follow Him. Seek out that purpose for which He is calling you. All right, we'll get off of verse one and start moving on because we got more to cover. Verse two Always be humble. And gentle. Hmm, sounds kind of like Jesus, doesn't it? Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. I think Paul has quit preaching here and gone to meddling. What's he pointing out? He's saying we ought to have the attitude of Christ. We ought to treat people the way Jesus did. He treated people humbly and gently. He didn't have to. He was the God of all creation. He could have come in just blasting away, but he didn't. Why? Because Jesus loved people, loves people. And if we've got Jesus in our life, and his presence in our life is showing, then we're going to have to start looking like Jesus. Be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make allowances for each other's faults because of your love. In other words, don't jump on a person when they mess up. If somebody's wrong, that's not cause to crucify them. When you love them, You make allowances why because that is an act of love we love to scream about justice what's fair and yet god calls us to mercy he says he'll handle the justice side of things we're called to mercy we're called to extend grace he goes on verse 3 make every effort To keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father, who is over all and in all and living through all If you didn't pick up on it, there's a word in that passage that appears over and over and over again. The word one It's not us and them. it's not two or 15. it's one. We're saved one gospel, one Savior, one Lord. One spirit, one body, calling us to one glorious hope for the future. One. When you gather for worship, do you gather as one? When you pray for believers, for the church, Do you pray like you're praying for one? Paul makes it abundantly clear that's who we are to be and how we are to approach it. We are called as one body. Now, Paul, having established that we're one body, and that what makes us one is our Lord, our Savior, our faith, the promise of the future, the message of the gospel. We are united in Christ, made one. Well, in light of that, if we are one and that one is the body of Christ, the church, are things always the same inside that body? Well, course not not all the same but unified yes i can tell you as i sit here and record this my body is not all the same the different parts of it look different they do different things but it's all still part of one body why do the different parts of my body look different and do different things because they were designed to carry out a different function. Paul's already told us we have a calling from God. Now we're going to talk about a gifting from God, and that gifting empowers us for our calling. Hear what he says, starting in verse 7. However, he has given... Now we've talked about one body, we're one. Then he says, however... He has given each one of us a special gift, or that can be literally translated a special grace, through the generosity of Christ. That is why scripture says, when he ascended to the heights, he led the crowd of ca- a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, that's from Psalm 68, but there's some debate over, what's he mean by that? When he ascended to the heights, he led the captives. Well, let's keep talking because Paul explains it a little bit. He says in verse 9, notice that it says he ascended. Well, this clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascends higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Okay, that cleared it up, didn't it? Well, there's still some varying views on this. Uh, One, this whole ascended and descended. What's it mean he descended? Uh, Some think that the, the he descended meant him going into the grave. You know, him, his atoning work on the cross, his death, his burial. And then the he ascended being his resurrection. Others look at this and say, well, it's, it's, that's not quite what it is it's it's different than that it's it's he you know it, maybe it's he descended spiritually at pentecost on his people and and the ascension is the promise of our resurrection and and being united with christ at the last day you know maybe that's what it's about i'm going to go with with another view and it's it's actually a very common view on this passage And that view is very simply that when it says that he talks about him descending, it's literally talking about the incarnation of Christ. We're talking Christmas here. We're talking the presence of God with man, that he came down from the heavenly realms and made his dwelling among us. And what's his ascension? Well, it's uh, his ascension. See the end of Matthew's gospel. It's a good place to find it. that that's what the Ascension's talking about. That's another view, and I want to be honest and present the varying views, and also be honest and say, hey, that's the view I hold. And I think it's pretty straightforward. Paul isn't trying to mince words here. He's saying, look, notice it says he ascended. Well, it clearly means Christ also descended to our lowly world. And he's saying, look, it's clear. It's it's not something for debate or, or confusion here. There's no secret. If he ascended, then he descended and he descended to our lowly world. So just a little background on those passages there. Now, Paul has already broached the subject here, starting back in verse 7, of these special gifts or graces. Uh, we've come to call them in church life spiritual gifts. And we've got some varying views on them, and there are a few different places in Scripture, particularly from Paul, where we see listings of various spiritual gifts. I'd like to pose to you none of them are exhaustive lists and that we're not given these lists to fall into the trap of going, ooh, I want this gift, and oh, I don't want that gift, and "And ooh, how about this one? Or falling into the trap of thinking, I have this gift now, so I will have this gift Forever. The different callings that God places upon us require different gifts. The different situations that we are in, in his service, may require different gifts. And we need to understand he will give us the giftedness we need for the calling he has for us at that time. And not get hung up on, well, you might say, worshiping the gift worship the giver, follow him, the rest of it falls into place. Let's go back to verse 11 and pick up again with what he's saying. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Now, what he begins to do after he says that, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Again, not exhaustive list. And what he's saying here isn't actually the gifts of the Spirit That Christ gave to all within the church because what he's about to list is different positions, different ministries within the body of the church. And he's saying these are the the gifts the individuals called and gifted to these tasks that God has given for the benefit of the church, to the church. Now let's look. Now these are the gifts. Christ gave to the church. First gift on on the list, the apostles. Well, what's an apostle? These days it's real popular in some circles of church life. For folks to declare themselves an apostle or even, I love this one, a super apostle. What's a super apostle? See that one in this passage? Yeah, I don't either. An apostle. Apostle is a divinely commissioned missionary, an evangelist. That's an apostle. Someone who has a a burden and a calling from God to go as a missionary evangelist to proclaim the gospel to a group of people. That's an apostle. And in the New Testament, those apostles were sent by Christ. Does that mean that Christ isn't calling men and women today to go as missionaries and to proclaim the gospel? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. And we should celebrate those functions, and that is a gift to the church. Celebrate it. Celebrate the one who gives that gift. And how about we not get hung up on titles? The second one, the prophets. So, the gifts that God gives the church apostles, prophets, let me just read the list and then we'll unpack it, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. So there's the list, apostles, we've covered that. A prophet, what's a prophet? Well, I've spoken many times in these podcasts about what a prophet is. Uh, a prophet is someone who um, speaks messages from God for his people, proclaims the word of God. Someone who is able to say, thus saith the Lord. Someone who is able to look at the way we are living in our world around us and God's word and say, here's where they don't match up, and we need to straighten up. That's a prophet. Well, he also lists evangelist. What's an evangelist? Evangelist is someone who proclaims the good news. Interestingly enough, this is a gift to the church and a giftedness of God's grace to individuals that are called to that task. It doesn't let us off the hook for all of us being responsible for proclaiming the good news. So don't forget that. Just because your giftedness may not be as an evangelist or your calling may not be as an evangelist, it doesn't mean that God hasn't given you some of the work of evangelism. Then the next one or two, it varies and we'll discuss that. Pastors and teachers... I'm kind of partial to this category. You might guess as to why. Pastors, literally this word means shepherds. They care for the flock of God's people. That's the role of a shepherd. And as we delve into what a real shepherd is, um, it shed some light on ministry in the church as far as pastoral ministry goes. The shepherds guided the sheep. The shepherds protected the sheep. The shepherds led the sheep, sometimes to places the sheep didn't want to go because the sheep couldn't see anything but what was right in front of them. But the shepherds' job was to take them where they needed to go. I've never dealt with sheep. But I understand that they can become so intent on grazing the ground right in front of them that they will literally graze themselves off a cliff. If that's true, then sheep are probably a pretty good descriptor of people. Sometimes we become so intently focused on what's right in front of us that we don't see the larger landscape. God has given the church individuals that he has called and gifted to shepherd them. Well, there's the and teachers. Teachers expound Scripture and God's truths to the church. That's what a teacher is, what they do. They teach, and teach not just in an academic sense, but teach for understanding and application. Now, some read this list, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and they see all those as distinct and separate things. Others read the list and see bits and pieces of each one in different individuals. And when we get to the pastors and teachers, the way it's written there is a little ambiguous. It could be that pastors are one category and teachers are another, but Part of the way it's written is pastors and teachers, like they're lumped together. They're not distinct and separate. So that's just some food for thought there. Well, those are the categories. Now, what's their purpose? Well, verse 12, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue. Until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of the Son of God, or of God's Son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. That's the purpose. So that together, all of us can be built up. Because there's a goal that goal is maturity in Christ. That is measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. That is why God has blessed the church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. It's for the building up of the church. Why? Because the church is supposed to be about doing the work of the body of Christ. Early on in my ministry, I was at a church where we were looking to hire a staff member, and I can remember an issue that developed, that it caught me by surprise, frankly, over our terminology. They were looking to hire a director of this area of ministry, because they'd always had a director of this area of ministry. And I started advertising for a minister for this area. And I can remember one day that I was pulled aside by a couple of folks in the church and they said, we're not hiring a minister. We're hiring a director because we already have one minister in this church. And that's you. And I remember kind of shaking my head to myself and uttering a phrase very simply that according to Ephesians, we have a church full of ministers if they know Christ as their Savior and Lord. And this church better not just have one minister in it. Well... I won't claim that as any great victory or, or great enlightened change in thought. And maybe I didn't handle that the best way possible. But the truth of it is still the same. Our churches should be full of ministers, gifted by God for the callings that they have, all of us working for the building up of the body. Because what is the body? Not the church. The body is the body of Christ. And not only is it supposed to be strong and healthy, it's supposed to look like Jesus. Remember the goal? That we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Whether you are gifted and called as an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor or a teacher, or something else in the body of Christ. Be active in what God has called you to be, because he has a purpose and a plan for you. He has empowered you to do it, and the focus of all of it is to build up his body. Not just build a big church, but to build up his body so that we all gain maturity. And look more and more like Jesus. Measure up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Well, that sounded kind of like a conclusion, but Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps going. In verse 14, he says, When we no longer, or excuse me, then, when we reach that maturity, living up to the full and complete standard of Christ, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies, so clever that they sound like truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. This makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. And in Paul's use of the the imagery of the body, it's tremendous here because isn't that exactly what our body does when the different parts are functioning? They work to support and build up the other parts. So as Paul's talking about us fitting together and how each part does its own special work and it helps the other parts to grow so that the whole body will be healthy and growing and full of love, he is taking what he has presented as far as these these gifts that we receive from God and this calling we have from God, all rooted in the truth of the gospel and the indwelling presence of Christ in our lives. And now in verse 17, he shifts a little bit, talking about, okay, that's what God has gifted us with. Now we're going to get down to what it looks like to live out the gospel of Christ. He talked about living it out and acting in love towards one another, and and let let me find the passage here. Um, Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. That's verse 15. What does that look like? Well, Paul's about to tell us exactly what that looks like. In 17, he says, With the Lord's authority, I say this, Live no longer as Gentiles do, for they are helplessly confused. sometimes we forget that. When he says Gentiles, he's not speaking in a racial or ethnic sense there. He's speaking about those that do not know the Lord. Those that are, well, we would call them in our modern world, lost. So with the Lord's authority, I say, live no longer as Gentiles do, as the lost do. For they are hopelessly confused. And you might go, well... You know, I look at the world around me, and it's a mess, and people don't get it, and why won't people acknowledge God or, or right and wrong as established by God? Well, you want your answer? It's because they're lost, and being lost, they are hopelessly, and that's not an accidental turn of phrase there, they are without hope, they are hopelessly confused. Their minds, in verse 18, their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Is a phrase I like to use, I try to remind folks of it on a regular basis, and that is understand lost people are lost and they're going to behave like they're lost. You see, we're not supposed to sit around and wring our hands that those that don't acknowledge Christ live like they don't acknowledge Christ. And it shouldn't surprise us either. It truly is nothing new. But we need to be reminded our call is to be different. That we, as children of God, are called to be so much more that, as Paul says, we are to live no longer as the Gentiles do or as the lost do. We used to be one of them, but we're not anymore, and our lives ought to look profoundly different. And maybe that's one of the big indictments against us as the church today when we truly examine our lives, our attitudes, our behaviors in this world, in this society, do we really look much different than the lost world? If we don't, then I pose to you the idea that maybe it's not because the lost world is so good. Maybe we're doing such an awful job of being the church that God has called and gifted us to be? Just something to chew on there for a moment. Well, Paul's about to shift gears just slightly and talk about who we are in Christ, not who we shouldn't be, living as the lost world, but who we are now. All right, let's turn our attention to verse 20. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Remember, don't live like the Gentiles. That isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. What a contrast. You can be like the Gentiles, like the lost world. You can be hopelessly confused, minds full of darkness, wandering far from God, hardened hearts, closed minds, or what we are called to be in Christ— Because we have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, he is the source of all truth. Jesus said it himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So Paul says, in light of that, throw off your old sinful nature, your former way of life. The way you used to do stuff shouldn't be part of who you are now. That's the old you. Put it behind you. Throw it off. The imagery he's using here is the, the imagery of taking off an article of clothing. You know, you got this old ratty, dirty jacket with stains and holes. and Maybe it's got patches and, and all sorts of junk on it. And... He's saying, it's time to take that off, because that doesn't represent who you are any longer. Put on the new. It's time to be different. Verse 23, instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Do we still have trouble with our thoughts and our attitudes? Yes, we do. And if you claim you don't, you're probably lying. But we are not condemned to our old way of thinking or our old attitudes. Christ is in the business of redeeming, and he will redeem. He will, according to this passage, verse 23, the Spirit will renew your thoughts and your attitudes. You want to think about things differently? Then pray that God will give you the ability to have a new attitude. That God will bless you with new thoughts, a new way of thinking, and then immerse yourself in his word. Learn how he sees the world, what he says is right and wrong, and how we should treat each other. And that will profoundly begin to change your heart and your attitude. It is the spirit at work in you. Instead, let the spirit. I find that interesting. He says, let, don't, you know there's not a a real active thing there. It's kind of passive. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. It's like we've got to fight him to keep him from renewing our thoughts and attitudes. Quit. Let him do it. Verse 24, put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. And now he's going to talk a little bit about what that looks like, being righteous and holy. Verse 25, so here's the do and don't list. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. For we are all parts of the same body. We're lying to our neighbors and we need to stop that? What does that look like? What do you mean we're lying to our neighbors? Well, are we being honest with our neighbors? Are we sharing the truth of reality? Truth of even down to who God is with our neighbors? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we leading people that are far from God to think that they're okay when the reality is something very different? Folks, that is lying to your neighbors. Or maybe within the body of Christ, because he's talking here, he references it, for we are all parts of the same body. So maybe this, this is referring to within the church. Are we being dishonest with each other in the church? Could be we're presenting false fronts, presenting ourselves as something other than what we are or who we are. I don't know what that looks like in your life. But the admonition is the same for all of us. We need to stop telling lies. We need to be honest. What is in our heart and what comes out of our mouth and what our hands do should all match up. And we need to be honest with each other. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. For we are all parts of the same body. I'm in trouble if, say, the nerves in my hand start telling my brain something that's not true. That's going to cause problems. I don't need parts of my body lying to each other. Christ calls us to be one body, functioning well, with him as the head. So let's follow the head and be the body. He goes on in verse 26 and says, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Now, I need to clarify that just a little bit, and there's there's some disagreement on this. But anger in and of itself is not necessarily a sin. It is one of our emotions. It is part of how God made us as as emotional beings. And there's some aspect of it that reflects his nature and character. It's a whole image of God thing. Our problem with anger is how we deal with it and maybe why we wind up there in the first place. We need to examine our anger. We need to, as Paul tells us, not let our anger control us. When it flashes red and our anger takes over and our brain shuts down, that is never, let me repeat that, that is never going to end in a way that glorifies God. That is giving the devil a foothold in our lives. Because we are to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And when we let our anger take control, we're not letting the Spirit of God be in control. Do not let anger take control of you. Does it mean you're never going to get angry? No, it doesn't. But it means you don't have to let anger control you. And then Paul gives this wonderful encouragement here. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. What's that mean? It means don't let anger linger. And there's some real reasons for that. Because if we let anger linger in our hearts, then we're going to reach the point where that anger, that angerness, what's angerness? That anger begins to develop into bitterness. That deep-seated anger that we just hang on to becomes bitterness. And once we become bitter, then we truly are not following God. And we've got this weird mentality about, it. you know, that person made me angry. There's some perceived wrong or some something that just made me angry. So I'm going to show them, I'm going to stay angry at them. That'll teach them. Now, just pause for a moment and think about that. Isn't that what we do in our lives when we get mad at somebody? We hang on to the anger to punish them. Let me let you in on a little secret. It doesn't punish them. It hurts you. It builds to bitterness. It gives the devil a foothold in your life. That foothold, well, if I might play on the words, that foothold gives him the opportunity to stomp on you. Because you'll start to believe all the lies that he's whispering. Don't go there. Deal with your anger. Don't let the sun go down on it. Don't let it linger. Don't let it become something you hang on to. Don't keep it as a pet. Because it will turn into something that will tear you apart. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Just don't do it now in verse 28 paul says if you are a thief quit stealing instead use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need Why is he saying that? He's going on continuing this list of what it is to live as a child of God, to reflect the righteousness and holiness of God in your life, because it is your new nature that you are given. The old one has been replaced. So if you're not going to live like you used to be, it may be that you used to steal. Quit it. Stop. Instead, use your hands for something good. Use them for good, hard work, honest labor. Why? So that you can give to others. What a radical attitude shift. Not only are you not stealing what you did not earn, but you are earning, but then what you gain when you were stealing it, you were stealing it for your benefit. Now you're working hard to honestly earn and gain for the benefit of others. There is a complete turnaround. There is no way, shape, or form that looks like the priority system or the value system of the lost. That is the redeemed. Verse 29, don't use foul or abusive language. Oh, I've had plenty of people. Well, the Bible doesn't say don't cuss. What do you think that verse talks about? It's two different things, actually. One, don't use foul language. Why? Because it tears people down. What profanity builds people up? Give you a minute because some of you may know more profanity than others. Can you think of any profanity, that any foul language that builds people up? I didn't think so. Or abusive language. Well, why not abusive language? Because it tears people down. Abusive, derogatory, language that belittles, that makes someone less, is, frankly, the direct opposite of building someone up. It doesn't have a place in the body of Christ. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those that hear them. Now, I would love to sit here and say, man, I have nailed that. I have got verse 29 down, and I'd be lying to you. I wish everything I said was good, helpful, and encouraging. But God's still working on me. I'm still, well, back to verse 23, letting the Spirit renew my thoughts and attitudes. But the goal is every day is better than the day before. And every sentence is closer to being helpful and good and encouraging as opposed to what was. It doesn't mean what's said is always appreciated at the time. But the goal, the attitude behind it, the heart behind it, is to speak those words in love for the purpose of building up the other person. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement To those that hear them. If you like to go through life playing devil's advocate with everybody, knock it off. The devil doesn't need an advocate, he's already there talking. Your job as part of the body of Christ is to build them up. Let's get to building. And now in verse 30. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Oh, don't bring sorrow on God's Spirit by the way you live. What a crushing thing for Paul to say. I mean, which one of us wants to think that we are bringing sorrow on God's Holy Spirit, that we are bringing grief to the heart of God because of the way we are living our lives? And yet the sin in our lives is doing just that. It is bringing sorrow on God's Spirit live a life that brings joy to the Lord, that builds up others, that is not who we were, but is who we are becoming in Christ as new creatures, redeemed, being sanctified. Remember, He has identified you as His own. For the lies this world and for the lies the enemy will tell you that you're not really his. That you're not worthy. That you don't matter. Listen to the second half of this verse again. Remember, he has identified you. He has identified you as his own. Guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. It doesn't matter what the devil says to you. It doesn't matter what the world says to you. What matters is what's in that verse. Christ has identified you as his own and is guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. If everything else feels like it's slipping away in your life right now, hang on to that. Because it is the truth. Now, finishing out this chapter, we get to verse 31, and Paul gives us this last little hit list here of the, okay, be sure you clear this stuff out. Here it is. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Now, that's a pretty short list, but pretty straightforward. And the idea is still building on what he's already shared with us. Who we were when we were part of the lost world, when we lived apart from God, We were governed by bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, and all types of evil behavior. And he's saying, get rid of that. That doesn't need, shouldn't be part of your life any longer. Instead, I love that about scripture. I love that about God. Okay, I love lots of things about God. But I love that every time I encounter a passage of scripture, that talks about what needs to be cleared out of my life, God always gives something to replace it with. It's not a don't list. It's a instead of these things, do these things. Instead of focusing here, focus here. In this passage, get rid of, and we've got the list, and then in verse 32, instead... Replacing those things. Instead of doing those things, be kind to each other. Tender-hearted. Forgive one another. We want to be like Peter and say, okay, God, I'll forgive them. How many times? How many times do I have to forgive? I I mean, God, you know them. You see how they behave. How many times do I have to forgive that? And he answers that with the next part. Forgive one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. How has God forgiven us through Christ? Completely. Every time. No matter what. And you may say, well, that, that, that's not fair. I mean, you know, the whole once bitten, twice shy thing. That, no, I'll forgive them once or twice, but if they just, they, they don't really seem to be trying real hard to change, I'm going to quit forgiving them. Not an option. God doesn't give you that out. He says, you forgive them like I forgave you. Do you want God to forgive you? In a way that says, you know, I'll forgive that sin in your life the first, I don't know, 137 times. But you hit 138 and you're toast. Is that the kind of forgiveness you want? It's not the kind you received. And God simply says, as a new creature in Him, with a new nature, And Paul says that new nature is, and I quote, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. If we have a new nature that's created to be like God, truly righteous and holy, then we can't keep hanging on to who we were. We've got to hang on to who Christ is. And Christ forgives us for everything past, present, and future. And he does it because he loves us. Remember in Romans, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we had cleaned up our act, become good enough, shown that we were worthy of being forgiven, he forgave us. No, while we were still sinners. So is it unreasonable that that same God... Living in our lives, giving us a new life, making us a new creature created to be like Him, would say that we're supposed to forgive one another, that we're to be kind to each other and tender hearted towards each other, just as through, or excuse me, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. It's a tall order. And it's a tall order that in our humanity, we will be incapable of. But it's not just our humanity anymore. You know Christ is Savior and Lord. You have the indwelling presence of His Spirit. You have God's Holy Spirit. You have, as Paul described it, these gifts of grace at work in your life. Let the Spirit of God... Be at work in your life. Let the Spirit of God renew your thoughts and attitudes and put on your new nature. It's going to take time. It's going to take work. It's going to take a lifetime. But keep moving in that direction. Paul gives us some very practical, gives the church at Ephesus very practical guidance here in what it is to be saved and what it means to live out that salvation as part of the church, the body of Christ. And as a witness to one another and this world, let's turn to Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your presence in our lives, for your call for us to be so much more. And not based on our own efforts, or our own worthiness. But your gift to us is a new life, new attitude, new purpose. Lord, help us to put behind us who we were. in the ways that hinder us from following you. Help us to not live as lost, but understand we once were, but we are no longer. Help us not to adopt the attitudes that we had or the attitudes of our world. But Father, we ask that you would help us to do just as you command. Help us to be kind to one another to be tender-hearted to one another, to forgive one another just as you, through Christ, forgave us. Help us to live those lives because that's the new life you gave us and the new life you call us to. Lord, help us to live this new life for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.